Hello and welcome to Grow Series, an MCAT review podcast. So in this episode, we're going to get on with foundational concept eight of the psychology and sociology part of the MCAT. This is all about individuals and societies. So last episode, we talked all about society and it'll spill into this episode as well. In this episode, I'll be mentioning a lot of psychologists, which is annoying because you got to remember their names, but it's not that bad, I promise, because besides their theories, the rest of it is honestly super easy. As I mentioned before, I'm going to review over topics. That means I won't go over all the nitty gritty, but I'll try to give you the bulk of the content. All right, so without further ado, let's jump into this episode. So I'm going to be mentioning a lot of quote unquote self things like self-concept, self-identity, self-esteem, self-efficacy, etc., Try your best to differentiate them because they can be confused pretty easily. So self-concept is how you perceive yourself. And another way to talk about self-concept is saying self-awareness. Self-concept development has two parts, the existential self and the categorical self. So the existential self is basically saying you're aware you're a separate person from others. You know, you're aware that you exist. You're existential. Categorical is kind of the opposite. It's saying that, yeah, we're separate, but we live in a world with others. We compare ourselves and put ourselves in categories based on other people. So, you know, self-concept here, it has that yin and yang. The yin is the existential self, which is saying you're separate. And the yang is the categorical self, which is saying you're separate, but you work best in a group. So moving on from self-concept, there's self-esteem, which is the respect someone has for themselves. We use this a lot in our daily language, so it's not too hard to remember. So self-efficacy, on the other hand, is the belief in your ability to succeed in a certain situation. Self-efficacy is how effective you are. So self-esteem and self-efficacy kind of sound similar. You know, one is about the respect for yourself and the other is about your belief in your ability to succeed, which is kind of linked to respect, you know. But the reason the concept of self-efficacy was made is because sometimes people are successful but still don't respect themselves. Let's take Vincent van Gogh, for example. He was an amazing painter, but a perfectionist that suffered from depression. So he was incredibly effective, so he had great self-efficacy, but he didn't respect himself, and that led to having one less ear, you know, the iconic Vincent van Gogh. Um, And so that means he didn't have self-esteem. All right, now, you guys remember Bandura? Remember the whole Bobo doll guy? Yeah, that guy. He was the one who made the concept of self-efficacy. So Bandura, he was a straight sociology god. Like, this guy really spread his wings on so many concepts, Insane enough, he's actually the fourth most frequently cited psychologist of all time and the most frequently cited psychologist who's still alive. So hats off, Bandura, you're the GOAT. Bandura thought that those who have great self-efficacy recover from setbacks better, they have stronger interests, they commit to things more, and they enjoy challenging tasks. So if you commit to studying for the MCAT so much so that you'll listen to some random dude talk about it on the internet, you probably have pretty good self-efficacy. So how do we get better self-efficacy? How do we make ourselves commit to things more and essentially become more successful? Well, mastering your craft is one way. If we carry on with this MCAT example, putting more hours of work in makes you commit more. And another thing is social modeling. Seeing other people kill their MCAT makes you want to do the same. Then there's social persuasion. So me saying you guys have a great self-efficacy probably lowered your doubt in yourself. And with less doubt, you get more focused. So that's social persuasion. Then there's social modeling, and there's mastering your craft. Lastly, a great way to become successful is ridding yourself of stress and lowering your neuroticism. Easier said than done, of course, but making steps to do it seems to give noticeable effects. So speaking of self-efficacy, we talked about the locus of control in the last episode, but just for a review here, self-efficacy is really tied to an internal locus of control. 
An internal locus of control means that you think results come primarily from your own actions, whereas an external locus of control, they attribute events to other people and things around them. So there's this one dude, his name was Carl Rogers. He was a very humanistic theorist. He believed in lots of those quote-unquote self-concepts. He said that self-image is what we believe we are. Self-esteem is how much value we place on ourselves. And our ideal self is what we aspire to be. So when our ideal self and our real self align, then, you know, we made it. We accomplished what we aspire to be. Life is good. But when our ideal self and our real self aren't a match, it's called incongruity. So similar to the social identity stuff, we'll talk about social identity theory. That's basically saying groups to which people belong to are an important source of pride and self-esteem. So groups that give you an identity and a sense of belonging. I'm sure you have a sense of camaraderie with fellow pre-meds because, you know, you guys belong in a group and you identify with each other towards a common goal, which is social identity. Now we're going to move on to development. And this is a big topic. You know, it's going to be a decent chunk here. There's four theories that are the most important to understand. Those are Freud, Erickson, Vygotsky, and Kohlberg. So Freud is the first guy who wanted to talk about development. He was all about that psychosexual stuff. He thought that early childhood was the most important period of our time to develop personality. And Freud was weird with how he thought about it. So he had five stages throughout childhood. And um, if there's any issues that weren't resolved, it led to a fixation. So some people chew on anything they can get their hands on. You know, that might be an oral fixation from their childhood. At this point, I think it's pretty clear that Freud has some uh, rudimentary ideas. You know, they're kind of suspect, but he was the grandfather of psychology. And he had some interesting ideas that, you know, we still use today. Erickson, he was the second one on our list. He had the psychosocial development theory. So Freud was psychosexual. Erickson is psychosocial. He thought that personality and identity development was something that changed your whole life. And every stage of life kind of had a boss battle to go on to the next stage. So Erickson, he had eight stages. Think like trust versus mistrust, identity versus confusion, etc. And overcoming that boss battle plus natural maturity gets you to the next stage. So Erickson was psychosocial, all about how society, aging, and psychological maturity led to your development. Third one is Vygotsky. He made the sociocultural development theory. So Freud was psychosexual. Erickson was psychosocial. Vygotsky was sociocultural. He thought people actively learn through hands-on processes. And he thought everything related to society, you know, that being your languages, your cultures, your attitudes, etc. They're all responsible for the higher functions of learning. So that sociocultural development theory, it's all about how society and culture affect you. And then the last one here is Kohlberg. He had the moral development theory. He focused on moral reasoning and the difference between right and wrong. Kohlberg thought that moral reasoning develops through cognitive development and we go through six total levels. Let's go over again. Freud was psychosexual, Erickson psychosocial, Vygotsky sociocultural, and Kohlberg was moral. But they're all theories of development. I'll go in depth with all these theories right now. But just for now, know that Freud and Erickson, they had to do with personality development. And the last two, Vygotsky and Kohlberg, had to do with thinking development. So on episode six, I talked about Freud a bit in regards to personality. And I said that my guy here was a little crazy. He's all about these two instincts that drive you, libido and death instinct. Well, that double-edged sword vibe carries on with Freud's idea of psychosexual development. 
In psychosexual development, he thought life was just a tug of war between tension and pleasure. And with too much of one or the other, you start having issues. Now, Freud's ideas on psychosexual development are probably the most high-yield Freudian topics you'll see. So try your best to focus here. All right, so my guy Freud here, he said that the first five years are huge and had five stages of psychosexual development, oral, anal, phallic, latent, and genital. So to remember this, think of the mnemonic, old age, people love grapes. So oral, anal, phallic, latent, genital, old age, people love grapes. All right, so the old part of the mnemonic, that's for oral. Now the oral stage is not too long. It's from when you're born to your first birthday. And the baby's all about sucking and eating, but during that first year, the baby's also like, I, my mom is a homie, I can trust her. But if you have problems here, not only do you get potential oral fixations, like smoking or biting your nails, but you also get trust issues. So there's the actual physical effects of problems during those Freud stages, but there are also more emotional changes that can occur. Alright, so basically the oral stage, it's from when you're born to when you're one. You suck and you eat things and you start trusting the homies around you. All right, so old age people love grapes. We're done with the old part. Now let's get to age. Age is the anal stage and that's also one year. That's from when you're one years old to when you're two years old. This is obviously focused on the anus, but not in a weird way. I just mean like potty training and stuff, right? So with the oral stage, the deeper emotional vibe was with trust in the anal stage, it's all about control and independence. And if you have problems with this stage, Freud said people had uh, problems with orderliness and messiness later on. And although the scientific basis on that claim is pretty suspect, you can logic your way into this answer when it comes to the MCAT. So we know that the anal stage is associated with potty training. Potty training, it's all about independence, which is also control. And control and independence are essential if you want to be ordered and organized as you get older. So with Freud, you can kind of process your way, you know, kind of just logically break it down and understand it. All right. Old age people love grapes. Here the P is for phallic. If you don't know what phallic means, I'm not saying it. Just Google it. It'll help you out with that. Anyways, the phallic stage, it's longer than the last two stages combined. The phallic stage is three years long, whereas the last two were one year each. So here in the phallic stage, kids discover the difference between males and females. And during this stage, Freud said you start vibing with the same gender parent. So if you're a girl, you get closer to your mom. You, you know, you get that girl connection. If you're a guy, you get closer to the, you know, quote unquote boy connection with your dad. And if you have a problem in this stage, you get sexual dysfunction. Freud was also pretty weird with this stage because he started talking about the Oedipus complex, which was all about having a desire for sexual involvement with the other parent. But that's pretty weird. And to be honest, at this point, I'm pretty confident Freud was just kind of saying crazier and crazier things, hoping people would, you know, keep believing him. But, uh, you know, moving on from that, the next one in our mnemonic of old age people love grapes, L is for love, it's latent. So the latent period, it's the only stage here that doesn't have to do with libido. So think of the L stage being not libido, you know, so L is for not libido. In this period, people develop social and communication skills. So the latent stage is all about social ability. And then we get to the last one, the genital stage. And this is all about sharing. You develop sexual interests and you focus on the needs of others. So that's Freud. We're done with the first of the theories here. And remember before I split them into two categories. So the first two I'm talking about here, Freud and Erickson, those are all about personality development. 
Then after that, I, I'll shift into the last two theories, which are Vygotsky and Kohlberg. Those are about how your cognition develops. So the last personality development theory here is Erickson. Now, Erickson was definitely influenced by Freud, but his theory was way more societal. Along with that, Erickson wasn't as strict with his beliefs. He knew as humans we could grow and adjust ourselves, and he knew, you know, life isn't too rigid. So remember what I said before, Erickson basically divided life into stages and said that there's essentially a boss battle you had to go through to get to the next stage. Now before I start, the best way to memorize Erickson's stages won't be through running over it over and over. Watch this video on YouTube by Michael Britt called Erickson's 8 Stages of Development, How to Memorize Them Once and For All. So that video is awesome. You'll be set on the different stages because like I said, there's eight stages. That's a lot to remember along with all the other different parts of the MCAT. But this is pretty high yield. So I just watched that video a few times. Get it, you know, get it in your head and you'll be set with Erickson's stages. And uh, the video again, it's called Erickson's eight stages of development, how to memorize them once and for all. I'll still run through the stages now, of course. The first stage at one years old is trust versus mistrust. So pretty similar to Freud here, where at one years old, you develop trust and there's a potential for a life of mistrust. But what you also get at this time is virtue of hope. Without this virtue, you also get mistrust. So at one years old, you focus on trust and hope. Erickson said at two years old, you focus on autonomy versus shame and doubt. So it's basically like if you don't get independence, you get shame or doubt. Kids develop independence by walking away from their mom, eating more varied foods, etc., it's necessary that the parents at this stage don't get too overprotective and they let their kids do their own thing. And that kind of correlates to Freud's stages as well. Remember, Freud said at two years old, kids should start to learn how to become more independent. Erickson agrees with that. And so far we have them, you know, Erickson and Freud, we have them agreeing pretty well on those things. So from three to five years old, there's initiative versus guilt. Here we start asking questions. We feel more secure, etc. We start getting a sense of purpose and explore the world and what it means to be independent. But if their tendency to ask questions is hampered in any way, they start to develop guilt and guilt for just being creative and young leads to a feeling of inadequacy. So let's say from three to five, they are doing all the right things. The environment is right and they're doing well. Well, the next stage is from six to 12 years old, and that's industry versus inferiority. So in this stage, you want to be industrious. You want to master new skills and win the approval from others. Here, teachers play a big role as well. You try to be a lot more productive, but if your sense of initiative is restricted, then the child starts to feel a bit more inferior. From 12 to 18 is your adolescent stage, which is identity versus role confusion. So it's one of the most important time periods. Here you re-examine your identity, you know, who you are, the person you are, how you see yourself, etc. You want to see yourself as unique, but you then don't want to face the consequences of rebellion from society and you know unhappiness so from 19 to 40 when you're an adult you get all the other stuff handled i'm talking bills school etc that's when you start settling in and going like dang you know I'd, I'd really like to have a relationship right now so 19 to 40 think of it as kind of like a love stage but erickson calls it intimacy versus isolation you try to find intimacy but avoiding intimacy leads to loneliness or isolation Two stages left here. There's the one from 40 to 65 and the one from 65 and older. The 40 to 65 year old stage is the generativity versus stagnation stage. And that makes sense. You know, are you going to generate a productive life for your community and for your kids or are you going to stay stagnant? Finally, at 65, you slow down, you contemplate on your life 
And that's where the stage of integrity versus despair comes in. You know how there's a stereotype of the sweet old grandma and the get off my lawn old man in the neighborhood? Well, that could be seen as two different paths at this stage. You know, one of them is integrity, a feeling of accomplishment at their life and thus, you know, they're happier at this age. And then there's one of despair, a feeling of unfulfillment through their accomplishments and therefore they're angrier at that age. So to run through it again, at one, we have trust versus mistrust. At two, we have autonomy versus shame. At three to five years old, we have initiative versus guilt. Six to 12 years old, it's industry versus inferiority. 12 to 18, which is your adolescence, you have identity versus role confusion. And then from 19 to 40, you have intimacy versus isolation. From 40 to 65, there's generativity versus stagnation. And the last one is 65 and older, and that's integrity versus despair. So eight stages here. And like I said, watch a YouTube video by Michael Britt called Erickson's Eight Stages of Development, How to Memorize Them Once and For All. That'll really help you out. All right, boom. Erickson and Freud are done. And that means that the personality development theories are done as well. Now we got Vygotsky and Kohlberg who focused on cognition. Vygotsky, he studied the social interactions of kids and he came out of it learning that babies have four basic mental functions and they're called PAMS, P-A-M-S. It's perception, attention, memory, and sensation. So I kind of link this to The Office. If you've seen it, you know the character Pam Beasley. The last names are kind of similar to Vygotsky. I mean, they both end in Y, Beasley, Vygotsky. So I kind of link those. And then her first name, Pam, obviously links to the four basic mental function, Pam's perception, attitude, memory, and sensation. So that's my way of remembering it. You know, you could use that as well. As a baby, Vygotsky says, you're kind of chilling. You know, life is good. You literally got four basic mental functions. Then as time goes on, they start developing into higher mental functions. But they need a model, which is usually a parent or a teacher. So just like a tree grows from a sapling to a tree, it requires water, nutrient, and sunlight. Kids can't just get those higher mental functions without the necessary crutches. And those influential models are usually their parents or their teachers. One vocab word you got to know with Vygotsky is the zone of proximal development. That's the bridge between not being able to do something and being able to do something. It's the most sensitive area and requires the best teaching. So think about it. If the bridge isn't stable, then you can't make the jump. So let's say I'm learning how to use chopsticks and I know how to kind of grab at things, but I know I'm not doing it 100% right because I can see everyone else is doing it way better. Well, if I get the help of a mentor, a model, or in other words, a more knowledgeable other, then they can help me cross that bridge of being really close to getting it to finally actually learning how to use chopsticks, you know, by placing my fingers in the right place, you know, like actually understanding it. So I had it relatively down, but the zone of proximal development is all about that last bit needed to actually excel in something. So not really sure how you can excel at using chopsticks, but you know, whatever. All right, so two things to basically take from Vygotsky here. First off, if you come up on a question asking the four basic mental functions of a child, think of the office, think of Pam Beasley, Beasley, Vygotsky, kind of similar, right? So you know the psychologist is Vygotsky. But then the PAM part stands for PAMs, which are the four basic mental functions of a child, perception, attention, memory, and sensation. Then, of course, you got to know that zone of proximal development thing, the zone where you can develop the understanding. You know, it's the bridge between not getting it to going like, oh, snap, you know, I can do that. Finally, we have Kohlberg here, the last of the four. 
And although he focused on cognition, he was a bit different than the others because he looked at morality. And to remember that Kohlberg had to do with morality, I just think of a, you know, cold world, Kohlberg, kind of similar. You know, it's a cold world. Some people have no morals. So I don't know, cold world, Kohlberg, pretty similar there, kind of cheesy. But I mean, y'all have had a ton of cheesy ways to remember things so far. So yeah, my boy, Mr. Cold World here, he looked at how people develop their morals and he came up with the Heinz Dilemma which is basically about if Heinz was the best ketchup or if we just use it because it's popular. I'm just joking. The Heinz Dilemma was about a dude whose wife had cancer and the drug to cure her was discovered by a local chemist. But the chemist, you know, knowing she needed it, charged 10 times the price and Mr. Heinz couldn't afford it. So Heinz broke into the chemist's office and stole it. See, you know, cold world. So he told that story to kids and asked them questions. And from their answers, he came up with three moral stages that are split into two you know, for each stage. Obviously, this scenario is pretty morally complex. You know, it's it's someone stealing, but they're stealing for a good thing. Kind of a Peter Pan scenario. But moving on to the stages here. So the first stage is pre-conventional. It's before your teenage years and you learn obedience and perspectives of life. You learn about how if you don't obey certain rules, you get punished. And then you learn that there's many different ways to go about something. The second stage is conventional, where you learn authority and with authority comes conformity. Paired with that, you get to learn about social order and society. So this stage involves adolescents and adults to a degree. Then there's the post-conventional stage. You get even deeper. You learn about the societal contract that sure, you know, laws and rules are made to help society, but sometimes they hurt you. If you're an avid jaywalker, then maybe that law just isn't for you. For Heinz, protecting his wife's life was more important than trespassing and stealing. Sure, he's breaking the law, but his moral compass isn't based on what's right and wrong according to the law. Vygotsky had that universal ethical principle where people can develop their own moral guidelines and they can fit the guidelines that result with laws, but they're not always, you know, exactly similar to what the government says. So, for example, some people are strictly against drinking, but it's legal. So, sure, their universal ethical principle is saying that drinking is bad, but lawfully it's not. So to run through Kohlberg again, pre-conventional is obedience versus punishment and the different perspectives of life. Conventional is authority, conformity, and social order. And post-conventional is your judgment of what's right and wrong, not necessarily based on laws, but more so experiences. So those are the four theories of development. Pretty important, but out of everything, I think the most important to understand is Freud's and Erickson's. And to be honest, those take a lot of memorization. Now, I'm going to jump into another influential psychologist in a somewhat different topic. That is, you know, viewing yourself and the understanding of who you are as a person. There are two important guys to know here, George Herbert Mead and Charles Cooley, and they had two different perspectives. Both of them thought that others play a pretty big role on how we see ourselves, but they were different on how they thought it would happen. George Mead was all about how certain people in certain periods of your life affect how you think and how we view ourselves. Cooley, on the other hand, thought everyone a person interacts with influenced their identity. So a good way to remember the difference is the amount of letters in their name. Cooley is longer than Mead, M-E-A-D versus C-O-O-L-E-Y. C-O-O-L-E-Y, Cooley, obviously a longer name. So Cooley had a broader, bigger range of people that he thought could affect you. Compared to Mead, who had a shorter name and only thought a select amount of people at select periods of your life can affect how you view yourself. What Mead did that was huge for psychology was he kind of started the theory of symbolic interactionism. And that is something I'll go over in the next episode or two. 
but Mead basically started with the development of social behaviorism, which was how the mind and the self emerged through the process of communicating with others. So that social behaviorism, you know, how your mind and yourself kind of go together, they blend together because of the process of communication with others. Like I said, that was the start of symbolic interactionism. So basically, we become ourselves and form an opinion of ourselves by interacting with others. And there's three stages in doing so. The prep stage, it's when you're prepping, but you're just imitating others. You know, as kids, we used to play with pots and pans to imitate our parents cooking or play with a toy hammer and nail to imitate our parents repairing something. But then in this prep stage, we start focusing on communication without just simple imitation. We can use words and pictures to communicate and the imitation starts to fade away. But all these actions affect how others perceive us. So Mead's second stage was the play stage. In the play stage, you become a lot more aware of the friendships and relationships you have. You do a lot of pretend role play and you'll act like a doctor or a firefighter or something. It's basically just advanced imitation, but you're not copying what others are doing. You're playing into a role yourself. And then there's the game stage. Mead said in the game stage, we start understanding the attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors of society. We start to understand that people perceive us in different ways, but that we should also just start caring about the people close to us. So as you can see, we get more socially aware at every step. First, we're just imitating people. Then we start role-playing, and then we start understanding society as a whole, that we should care about the ones close to us, not everyone. So the game stage is the last stage, and Mead thought it developed the concepts of I and me. This is easy to get confused, of course, but me is how you think others perceive you, and I is the response to that reaction. So your I is your attitude towards others based on how they perceive you. So basically, me is the society's view of you. I is your view of others based on their view of you. So Mead had three stages here, the prep stage, the play stage, and finally the game stage. And he made the idea of social behaviorism, which, like I said, was the start of symbolic interactionism. And those are the most significant things you got to know about Mead here. That kind of sums him up. But like I said, there was another psychologist, Charles Cooley, who made the concept of the looking glass self. So remember before we talked about socialization? Basically, socialization is a process of how we learn attitudes, behaviors, and values expected by our culture through others. Well, socialization also forms your self-image, and that's what Charles Cooley focused on with his looking glass self theory. The looking glass self is basically how you see yourself based on all the relationships and interactions you've had in the past. In the whole nature versus nurture debate, Cooley was looking at how the nurture part forms your perception of yourself. The most important thing to understand with Cooley is he didn't think that people change how you act. He thought that the perception of people's opinions changed how you act. So it wasn't their actual opinion, it was your perception of their opinion that changed how you act. So let's say an overweight guy goes to the gym, super self-conscious, thinking, oh man, you know, everyone here is looking at me, they're probably judging me for not being as fit as them. Well, that guy, he's imagining their opinion of others. He's influencing his own experience based on that. Uh, when in reality, nobody's really judging anyone at the gym anyways, you know, everyone's kind of focused on their own workout. So yeah, that was Charles Cooley's looking glass self. But kind of bouncing off that concept of judgment, let me tell you guys about perception, prejudice, and bias. The most important thing to know with this is the attribution theory. The attribution theory basically says that behavior of others is decided in two ways, things about you and things that happen around you. So when we consider our own behavior, we blame it on external stuff more than internal. 
this kind of relates to the whole internal locus of control and external locus of control stuff we talked about in the last episode. You focus on kind of internal dispositional things or external, you know, situational things. An important thing to get with this whole internal external thing is Kelly's covariation model. Basically, there's three points to know. Consistency, often judged by time. Distinctiveness, judged by situation. And consensus, judged by people. So Kelly's covariation model is CDC, consistency, distinctiveness, and consensus. What does that mean? Well, let's say you have a friend that always flakes on you, right? So they always kind of skip out on group events, stuff like that. So the first few times you're like, okay, maybe they were just actually busy. But then after 10 times, you're like, okay, this person is definitely just a flaky individual. They definitely just kind of back out of plans last minute just for the hell of it. Not really the situation. Well, see, they have consistent behavior here. Over time, you've noticed a consistent trend. Therefore, you're less likely to blame their actions on the situation, more likely to blame it on themselves. So that's the consistency part of Kelly's covariation model. Remember, consistency, distinctiveness, and consensus. Distinctiveness is, like I said, judging by the situation. Let's say you have a friend that's super good at test taking. He kills every test in college, kills every practice exam for the MCAT, but doesn't do so hot on the actual MCAT. You can say, hey, that was some distinct behavior. Maybe it was just a situation that messed with him. You know, the MCAT testing center might have gone to his head. That was just distinct behavior. So distinctiveness kind of implies that the situation affected them. The last factor here is consensus, which is judged by people. So let's say you go to a class late, you feel bad for being late, even though there was a ton of traffic, but then, you know, 20 other classmates also come late. Well, the professor is more likely to blame that on the situation than on you specifically. They probably believe the traffic explanation more if 20 people came late because of the traffic compared to only if you came late. So we're judging a situation based on the number of people, aka the consensus. What's interesting about attribution is when we're looking at the behavior of others, we're more likely to blame their behavior to their internal factors instead of the actual situation. And that's the iconic fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error is pretty popular here, so get comfortable with it. Again, that's when you blame something on the person themselves instead of the situation they're in. That's seen a lot in medicine. You know, with patients of lower socioeconomic status, physicians will blame the patients for not doing the proper steps to ensure good health, but won't notice the situation that the patients are in. You know, whether they're having a tough time affording things, they don't have resources, stuff like that. That behavior can lead to stereotyping of those in those lower socioeconomic classes. Stereotyping, it's pretty self-explanatory, but it's essentially overgeneralizing a group of individuals. Stereotyping leads to the stereotype threat. Basically, if you get stereotyped, then you sometimes decrease performance. Let's say we said all people who wear white shoes do really bad on the MCAT. Then the people who wear white shoes on the MCAT might feel that stereotype threat and do bad. Their performance might decrease. Another thing that stereotypes do is the self-fulfilling prophecy. Essentially, stereotypes lead to behavior that affirms the old stereotypes. Let's say you think you're bad at interviews. You get a med school interview. Congratulations, you know, it's exciting. But you're really nervous. You're freaking out, thinking about how you can even answer the questions they throw at you. Totally out of it. And then you have another person who's super chill, super confident. They know they're going to crush the interview. Well, let's say the confident person does better on the interview and gets the job. What does that do? That reaffirms the original stereotype of the person that freaks out. They think, okay, well, clearly I'm bad at interviews. Then the next interview, they get even more frustrated at themselves. 
They're probably going to do worse as well. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's kind of like a feedback loop. So uh, we had stereotyping, attribution, etc. We're going to conclude with prejudice and stigma. The most prone personality type to prejudice is the authoritarian personality. They're obedient to superiors, but they're pretty rigid thinkers. They don't have much sympathy for those that they think are inferior to themselves. People with that personality type use prejudice to protect their ego and avoid confronting difficult aspects of themselves. A high-yield thing related to prejudice is the frustration-aggression hypothesis. So right now, I was talking about the authoritarian personality. Those are, you know, it's a personality type. Frustration is, of course, you know, a characteristic of sorts. Those who are frustrated also use prejudice a lot. You know, frustration turns to aggression, which is often rechanneled somewhere, and that's sometimes through prejudice. So, for example, let's say there's an American male who's having a tough time getting a job. That leads to frustration. And then they see a Mexican-American working somewhere. And that frustration leads to aggression towards those minorities as he, you know, screams, oh, minorities are taking our jobs. So frustration leads to aggression. They channel that aggression into a stereotype kind of way. So with prejudice, you got to know what causes it. So, of course, there's the traditional physical characteristics of prejudice, but some have more meaning than others. Nobody really judges anyone based on eye color, but judgment based on skin color is rampant. Ethnicity is also a thing. You know, Irish people are often judged by their English counterparts and vice versa. An important thing to know is prejudice also occurs due to power, social status, and prestige. There can be prejudice in the hiring policies of companies that certain companies, you know, are more prejudiced towards certain minorities, etc. And then there can be prejudice between the rich and the poor. So relating on this whole negative hate vibe we got going on, there's stigma. So stigma, basically, you're disproving or discrediting an individual based on society. So there's two forms here. There's social stigma and there's self-stigma. Social stigma, it's kind of the traditional stuff. It's basically linked to all the stuff I said earlier, you know, stereotypes, prejudice, etc. It's what you kind of think of when you think of stigma. And an example of that is stigma against mental illness. So stigma against mental illness, it's linked to the stereotype that those who are mentally ill are violent. You got that prejudice piece of people who are scared of those that are mentally ill. And then you have the discrimination when you don't want to interact with people who are mentally ill. As you can see, stigma holds a close relationship with stereotypes, prejudice, and discrimination. Self-stigma, on the other hand, is when someone internalizes all the negative stereotypes, prejudices, and discriminations that they face, and they just feel rejected by society. If someone has HIV or AIDS, they might feel self-stigma from the stereotypes and could isolate themselves from society. To really understand stigma, though, you got to know the social circles involved with society. First, there's self, then there's family, then there's society, and finally media. The broadest social circles are the ones that give the most stigma. So media and society really push the stigmas out there. But when you get a closer-knit vibe like families, they can also be stigmatized by society or they can stigmatize individuals themselves. And then, of course, there's the self, which we talked about, self-stigma. Someone can stigmatize themselves. So it's important here to know the social circles. So from closest to broadest is self, family, society, and finally, media. All right, to conclude here, I'll talk about social perception and ethnocentrism. So social perception is huge. You know how people say first impressions last? Well, that's 100% true. First impressions last a long time, they're really strong, and psychologists call that the primacy bias. So we recall information at the beginning better than the middle. But the recency bias is also a thing. The most recent actions are some of the most vivid, some of the most important. So primacy bias and recency bias, those are two words you got to know with social perception here. Another thing related to social perception is the halo effect. 
So Duke did a study on residency interviews, you know, people in med school applying for residency. They found that the people who are more conventionally attractive, they had way better success at interviews. And uh, that's related to that halo effect in the physical attractiveness stereotype. People just believe attractive people have more positive traits. They think they're funnier, smarter, etc. This also happens a lot with celebrities. The last aspect we got here of social perception before we move on to ethnocentrism is the just world hypothesis. It's basically saying you get what you deserve. It's used a lot so people can rationalize their ways. An example is like if a person who makes 300k a year sees a homeless person on the street and they might think, oh, that homeless guy probably did something that warrants homelessness. You know, they don't deserve my five bucks. Of course, the world doesn't really work that way. It isn't a just world, and there's a ton of different factors that play into success and failure, but the just world hypothesis says you get what you deserve. All right, so ethnocentrism, that's basically judging another culture from the perspective of your own culture. You often view your culture to be superior, and that can lead to cultural bias and prejudice. An example of that is a lot of people think that people from their own country are the smartest. Like, I'm an American, and I know many people who think that Americans are just superior in intelligence than other countries, when that is, you know, truly not the case. I mean, you can make the case for differences in education, which can lead to differences in the application of intelligence, but saying one country is noticeably more intelligent than the other is pretty suspect. So that's uh, ethnocentrism. You're judging another country based on the perspective of yours. A way to judge other cultures that is less negative is cultural relativism. When you judge other cultures from within their culture. So cultural relativism is when you judge another culture while being immersed in their culture. So if I'm experiencing Vietnamese culture within Vietnam, and if I'm making opinions on the society and culture, that's cultural relativism. But if I've never stepped foot in Vietnam, don't know anything about the culture, and make comparisons while I'm chilling in America, that's ethnocentrism. So ethnocentrism is when you're centered in your own culture. Cultural relativism is when you relate to a culture by being immersed in that culture. I'll conclude here with a few vocab words, and then we can get the whole quick summary of what we discussed today. Some important words centered around the content of this episode are group favoritism. That's when you favor people in your group, but that doesn't really mean you hate on people outside of your group. The people outside your group are neutral. You just favor the people inside your group. Then there's out-group derogation, which is when we're really friendly with people in our group and not that friendly with people outside of it, often because we think the people outside our group are threatening our little clique. We all know that squad of three or four people that are just not open to anyone joining their group. They just stick to themselves and they aren't really that open to people around them. Yeah, that's some out-group derogation. And lastly, here is group polarization. Groups make decisions that are more extreme than any individual opinion, which kind of enhances that group opinion. So if I said, I don't really like when people put milk in before their cereal, then someone else in my group is like, dang, I really don't like when people put milk in before cereal. Over time, we'd be like, you know, screw anyone that puts milk in before cereal. They aren't even real people. You know, that can also apply to pineapple on pizza. I don't really have a study to prove it, but if you do that, then you're a psychopath. So just like that, we're done with the intro into Foundational Concept 8. Thank you guys for sticking with me this far. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot if you subscribed. And if you're listening on the Apple Podcast app, I'd really appreciate if you rated this, reviewed this, whatever you want. But before we finish, I'm going to get a quick rundown, a high-yield summary of what we went through. So in this episode, we went over the definitions of self-concept, self-image, self-esteem, and the ideal self, you know, a few more. Self-concept is how you perceive yourself. And another way to talk about self-concept is saying self-awareness. Then there's self-esteem, which is the respect someone has for themselves. Self-efficacy, on the other hand, is the belief in your ability to succeed in a certain situation. 
self-efficacy is basically how effective you are. And uh, self-esteem and self-efficacy, they kind of sound similar. You know, one is about the respect for yourself. Other is about the belief in your ability to succeed, which is kind of linked to respect. But the reason the concept of self-efficacy was made is because some people are successful, but they still don't respect themselves. Got pretty deep there. Anyways, we talked about uh, social identity theory, which basically says as humans, we categorize ourselves without really realizing it. We talked a ton about the different theories from different psychologists. Carl Rogers made the humanistic theory where he saw self-concept as a mixing pot of self-image, self-esteem, and the ideal self. And when the ideal self and the current self aren't the same, you know, that kind of leads to some turmoil. And then with the theories of development, we had Freud and Erickson who had theories focused on how personality develops. And then Vygotsky and Kohlberg who had theories on how cognition develops. The most important thing to know, which takes raw memorization, is knowing Freud and Erickson's stages. Freud had five stages. Erickson had eight. Freud had that psychosexual development theory. Erickson had the psychosocial development theory. And remember, the acronym we made for Freud was old age people love grapes. But the stages for Freud were oral from zero to one years old, anal from one to two years old, phallic from three to six years old, and the latent period from six to 12 years old, which had no libido finally ending with the genital stage from 12 and up. Erickson had his theory kind of similar to Freud, but he thought that there was room for development and growth in people's lives, but that if there was a crisis at any stage, it could lead to long-term downsides. Erickson basically said there's a boss battle at the end of each stage, which if you succeed, lets you move on to the next stage. If you don't do so hot, it's something that's on your subconscious. At one years old, there's trust versus mistrust. Two years old, autonomy versus shame and doubt. Three to five, it was initiative versus guilt. At six to 12, it was industry versus inferiority. At 12 to 18, it was adolescence where you have that whole identity versus role confusion crisis. Then from 19 to 40, you got intimacy versus isolation. From 40 to 65, you have generativity versus stagnation. And lastly, from 65 and older, you have integrity and despair. Like I said before, watch that YouTube video by Michael Britt called Erickson's Eight Stages of Development how to memorize them once and for all, that video will really help you out. With Vygotsky, you got to know the four elemental mental functions. Elemental mental functions. Wow, that was cool. Those are PAMs, perception, attention, memory, and sensation. You also have to know the vocab word zone of proximal development, which is basically the zone between not being able to do something and being able to do something. It's the most sensitive zone for teaching and you need proper instructions from a more knowledgeable other. Finally, we had Kohlberg, a.k.a. Cold World, who had a theory of morality. He made his theory after asking kids about the Heinz Dilemma. The Heinz Dilemma was about a dude whose wife had cancer and the drug to cure her was discovered by a local chemist. But the chemist, knowing she needed it, charged 10 times the normal price. Mr. Heinz couldn't afford it, so Heinz broke into the chemist's office and stole it. It's kind of a story about morality, what your moral compass looks like. And he produced three stages that are pretty easy to remember. The pre-conventional, the conventional, and the post-conventional stage. So throughout life, you grow to understand slowly that there's a varied number of perspectives. Then you understand that authority is important. And then later on, you get to understand that your morality isn't always based on the laws themselves. For example, with Heinz, yeah, he broke in and stole something. But was that immoral in your perspective? If it was immoral, how immoral was it? You know, was it justified? In the post-conventional stage, you start asking questions like that. I went over George Meade and Charles Cooley. Both of those psychologists had a perspective of how others play a role and how we view ourselves, but they differed in their way of how they thought it could happen. 
So Cooley thought everyone a person interacts with shapes their identity. Mead thought it was only certain people in certain periods of life that shaped reality. We went over the attribution theory where we explain the behavior of other people by breaking down our own understanding of their behaviors and factors related to them, like their environment or their surroundings. An important thing to know with the attribution theory is a covariation model with three cues, which is CDC, consistency, which is judged by time, distinctiveness, which is judged by situation, and consensus, which is judged by people, like the number of people. And an offshoot of the attribute theory is the fundamental attribution error, where you under-recognize the situation and over-blame the person themselves. Stereotyping was another thing we went over, where you attribute a certain thought to a large group of people, and it's an overgeneralization. And stereotyping has two negative consequences. Stereotype threat, where it's like you're kind of scared you're going to fulfill a negative stereotype, and that lowers your performance. And then the self-fulfilling prophecy, which is when stereotypes lead to you affirming the original stereotype. Like if I said all city folk are super rude, then I go in expecting that city folk are rude. And if city folk think as you know someone like me from the South, I think that city folk are rude, then they come in with a less than positive image about me. So we both kind of clash there where if I think city folk are rude, I'll be like kind of more, more, you know, standoffish with them. And then if they think the same thing, they'll be more standoffish with me and it'll fulfill my original stereotype. Stereotype threat leads to a decrease in performance because you don't want to fulfill that negative stereotype. But self-fulfilling prophecy is when a stereotype actually fulfills the original stereotype. So self-fulfilling prophecy is kind of a feedback loop. And then there's prejudice. It can come from an authoritarian personality or from frustration. With stigma, there's social stigma and self-stigma. Social stigma is the traditional stigma you think about. Self-stigma is when you stigmatize yourself based on all the negative stereotypes and discrimination around you. The social circles you involve yourself with definitely affect the amount of stigma you face. You know, the closest circle is yourself and self-stigma occurs. Then there's family and then there's society and the broadest social circle is media. All social circles can stigmatize, but media and society really throw out those stereotypes and discrimination way easier and more effectively, you know, based on fear tactics and the inaction of laws, stuff like that. We went over social perception, specifically how first impressions are important, and then the halo effect, how someone who's good at one thing tends to be assumed to be good at others. So if you're attractive, people think you're funny, smart, etc. Then the just world hypothesis, which is just about how some people think others, you know, deserve what they get. Of course, it can be positive, like, oh, he worked hard, so he got that Lambo. But it's also sometimes negative, like saying a homeless person deserves to be, you know, homeless because they think the world is just, when really there's tons of factors that decide where we end up in life. Lastly, we talked about ethnocentrism, which is when you judge other groups from inside your little group. Cultural relativism, which is when you judge other groups from inside their little group. Group favoritism, which is when you give favors to your little group and are pretty neutral to other groups. Then there's outgroup derogation, which is when you're super friendly to your little group and pretty standoffish to the groups around you. And lastly, group polarization, where your little group gets some turbocharged opinions just because it's an echo chamber and everyone is voicing the same opinions, so it gets more and more extreme. Wow, that was a lot, but just like that, we're done. Few more episodes left here with psychology, I'd say about three or four, and then boom, we're done with that whole thing. So thank you everyone for listening to Grow Series, an MCAT review podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please email me at growseriesmcat at gmail.com. That's G-R-O seriesmcat at gmail.com. Thank you guys for listening for so long. It really means a lot. If you guys need anything, just let me know. And just like that, have a good one and see you guys on the next episode.